morning. I'm reading from Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, my name's Luke, uh, and some of you know this, but I used to work with college students before coming out here. We've been out here almost three months now, and before that I worked with college students at Northwestern University. I was uh, part of a campus ministry there, and working with college students, one of the phrases that I adopted and that became sort of just got, got drilled deep into my bones and became this sweet line of uh, remembering what's happening and remembering why I'm there is this little phrase, God is at work, okay? God is always at work. And the reason that is particularly helpful to keep in mind with college students is because it's not always clear that God is at work when you're working with college students, right? I would find myself oftentimes getting stood up uh, at lunch by the same freshman who hadn't learned to use a calendar yet over and over again, right? And so I'm sitting there in a dining hall on a college campus as a 30-year-old man with a family, a grown-up, you know, I'm a grown-up, and I'm sitting there by myself on college campus um, getting stood up again by the same 18-year-old, and I'm thinking, what is happening here? Why am I here? How did I get here? What have I done wrong to kind of deserve this? And then I remember, God's at work, right? God is always at work. Whether things are going according to my plan or not, God is always at work. And it's, uh, I was reminded of this truth again this week because I was actually not going to preach this week. Some of you guys know that. Uh, we're in a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, uh, but I was going to have a buddy come out and we were going to ski a couple days and he was going to um, preach for me this week. And uh, it turns out he is at home in Milwaukee this weekend throwing up with his entire family. So he decided not to come for our benefit, right? Thank goodness. But, you know, you get that call late in the week, and now you're thinking, man, uh, how is this Sunday going to go? But here's the deal. God's at work, right? So it doesn't matter if it's going according to my plan, but God is at work. So we are going to take Sunday off from the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to look at this passage in Ephesians. And uh, it is an incredibly good passage. Um, 
And to jump into it, the, the question I want to ask you guys to consider is how has God been at work in your life lately? Have you seen him at work? Have you experienced him at work? Because he is. I mean, whether you believe in him or not, uh, whether your life feels good this week or not, like you got it under control or not, whether things are going according to your plans or not, God's at work, right? He's always at work. And the gifts of the gospel of Jesus, they've been poured out into our world. He's active here. Like we were singing earlier, his glory has filled this valley. He's transforming lives. He's saving the lost. He's healing division. He's bringing hope. He's granting endurance and patience and faith. And the question is, do you see what he's up to? Do you have those, those kingdom eyes, right? Do you have a, a, a kingdom heart that can experience and feel all this activity that God is up to in our world? Do you see God at work? Our passage this morning is like a declaration that God is at work in our lives. Um, if there were a Mount Rushmore of the Bible, I'm not saying there is, but if there were, Ephesians 1 would probably be in it, right? Ephesians 1, Romans 8, maybe John 20. I don't know. Those are a few I'd put on there. But this is like a high water mark in the entire Bible. This is a gem. Uh, we're going to take a look at the opening lines of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Before we do that, let's pause and ask God to help us in our time. Jesus, we do ask that you would guide us through your word this morning. Paul is rich and dense, and uh, we just pray that as we unpack these words from your apostle, you would grow our faith, and you would give us eyes and hearts and spirits to see you at work in our lives and in the world. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we just read Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Now, English translators, you know, the Bible, was, the New Testament anyway, was originally written in Greek. But English translators have done us a favor here by dividing this passage, these, you know, whatever it is, 11, 12 verses, into sentences and even into paragraphs, okay? But in the original language that Paul wrote this letter in, everything we just read, verse 3 through 14, is one long, rambling, complicated, epic sentence, okay? It's just like the worst freshman uh, high school English run-on sentence of all time. I mean, he just goes on and on and on. This is all one idea in Paul's mind. And he begins this whole epic sentence in verse 3 by declaring that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, See, that's his thesis statement. And then he just kind of goes for it. He swings for the fences. And Paul tries to pack every single spiritual blessing that we have in Christ into this one run-on sentence. And he just goes on and on. He's asking us to consider this gem, like almost like a diamond. Paul wants to hold up the gospel, everything Jesus has done for us, and, and he turns it, right? And he says, have you considered this side of it? Now look at it from this angle. Now look at it from here. He wants us to, he, he's rotating it slowly, and he wants us to watch how the light of God's love sort of refracts through the different sides and the different aspects of the gospel and everything Jesus has done for us. So he says, consider union with Christ. Now look at justification. Now look at sanctification, right? Now look at redemption, predestination, adoption. You see how God's goodness shines through all of these promises, how they're all connected, but they all have their own beauty 
and their own hue and their own light that should cause us to worship God. In verse 7 and 8, Paul says the gospel contains riches of grace, which he's lavished on us. What a great phrase. It's like, it's like a, you know, hiking out in the mountains and, and just a waterfall pouring off the rocks. I mean, that's the image that comes into my mind of God's gifts to the world. It's just this lavish outpouring of good and love. We do not worship a stingy God. Okay, He's not watching a bottom line. He's not budgeting. He's not penny-pinching. He is just pouring out his gifts in this world. Do you see them? Do you see God at work in your life and in the lives of those around you? We don't have nearly the time, clearly, to unwrap all of the gifts that Paul is trying to unpack in this one epic sentence. So I want to zero in on one this morning. And in some ways, I think I'd call it the grand finale. I'd call it the gift of all gifts that Paul wants us to consider from this passage. Verse 5, he says, In love God predestined us for... What's the purpose of all this? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why should we call adoption into God's family uh, the gift of all gifts? Why hold this one up for special consideration? Well, because someone smarter than me thought we should do that. Uh, J.I. Packer, some of you guys might be familiar with him. He wrote a classic book called Knowing God. And the chapter in that book on adoption is worth the price of the book, okay? So if it's, it's amazing. But in it, he writes this. He says, justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past and his acceptance for our future, is the primary and found, fundamental blessing of the gospel. That's not a question. He writes that justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. But that's not to say justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. He goes on to write, adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God it involves. And this is how he explains it. Justification is a forensic idea. It's conceived of in terms of law and viewing God as a judge. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. We need it, right? But to be loved and cared for by God the Father... Well, that's greater still. So for our time this morning, I want us to unwrap the gospel gift of adoption and ask, what's so great about adoption? Okay, What's so great about being spiritually adopted into God's family? And then, maybe more importantly, do you see how the gift of adoption is at work in your life even now? All right? There's a lot of reasons uh, that adoption's great. We're going to look at three. Adoption gives us a certain inheritance, a greater intimacy, and a new identity. Certain inheritance. All right, verse 11. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, Paul writes, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So my wife, Janet, and I um, have had a number of close friends and family members that have adopted over the years. I'm sure there's many of you in the room that can sort of share that experience with us. Actually, um, Janet and I went through the process of adoption, too. We tried to adopt kids while we lived in Chicago, and we ended up matching with three different moms, and we were going to adopt um, their kids after they had but for various reasons, it didn't work out any of those three times. So we've sort of been through the adoption process. We've seen it up close. 
And it really is unique every time, right? I mean, you guys who have, have um, you know, been around the adoption process know every child's story is unique. Every family's story is unique. Domestic is different than international. Kazakhstan is different than Thailand. There's just different processes that you go through for all of this. But what's the one thing that ties every adoption story together? What's the one common denominator? It's that a child legally is transferred into a new family, right? They receive a new legal name. It's the changing of names. Adoption, before it's anything else, it's a new legal status. It's a new name. And with a new name comes a new story. And with a new story comes new rights and a new experience. With a new name, a child inherits a past that wasn't theirs before. So their new family's history becomes their family history now. And with a new name, a child inherits a new future. So that family's resources now become their resources. Their wealth becomes their wealth. And the Bible tells us that for every Christian, when the waters of baptism rolled over your head, if you're a Presbyterian or if you're a Baptist, if you get dunked in the, in the tub, you know, however it is that the waters of baptism roll over your body, you receive a new family name. Right? The name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. You are granted a new legal status in the universe. Before that, you were one thing, and after that, you are now a child of the living God. God's family history, what he achieved, his record, his fame, his glory, all of that is now your family history. And God's future, his family's future, is now your family future, his, his resources, his wealth. His glory is yours. You've been transferred in legally by right. This is the way Paul writes about it in Romans 8. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And then if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. Another translation of the Bible says co-heirs with Christ. Now, this is an amazing claim, all right? Let me just explain how sort of world-shaking that one line really is. Um, In the ancient world, the time this was written, the eldest son, the way they would do inheritance, the way they would do heirs, the eldest son would receive the vast majority of a family's wealth and possessions. And the reason they did that is so that it wouldn't get diversified over time and the family would like kind of lose their status by spreading their wealth around too thin. So they'd consolidate it into the oldest son's account. And then the younger, the rest of the siblings kind of got what was left over afterwards. Okay? If that were our arrangement, that would be amazing. All right, like as latecomers to the family of God, if we just got like God's resources and wealth and we just kind of got the leftovers of it, all of us would sign up for that. Okay, he owns everything and we'd take whatever slice of that we can get. This is claiming something even more. This is saying that the firstborn son of God, Jesus Christ himself, who all of the wealth and the power and the resources of of God um, are consolidated in his account, we are co heirs with him. Everything Jesus gets, we get. All of the resources of the kingdom of God that Jesus deserves by right are ours by right 
as we're adopted into the family of God. Your elder brother, the firstborn of creation, who created all things, shares everything he owns with you. What does Jesus own? Well, I mean, look around, right? Not only does he own the beauty of our world, the mountains, the sky, the cities, the culture, everything that's ever been created, Jesus owns the things that our soul longs for the most. Jesus owns eternal life, okay? He secured it by being raised from the dead after his crucifixion. Jesus owns fullness of life, complete humanity, deep peace, boundless joy. Those are all his by right. And through adoption, you're a co-heir with him in all things. These are his, and he extends them to you. I think this has some pretty practical I mean, it's nice to talk about this. Like, these are grand concepts. But I think this has some practical application for us, too. I mean, just consider um, how secure and safe your status of adoption makes you in the world. I mean, God has secured you into his family, and God does not de-kid his kids. Okay, once you're in, you are in. Like, he has you under his wing, and he cares for you and you're secure. And that fixed inheritance, I think, provides a great freedom for us as we move into the world. A freedom from anxiety, a freedom from fear. I mean, what do we really have to worry about if the riches of the kingdom of God are in our account and we share it with Christ? We have a freedom from envy and comparison, a freedom from people-pleasing, a freedom from perfectionism. We don't have to worry about how we look in the world because we're so secure in the status of adopted sons and daughters of God. There's a freedom to how we live, and we can move into the world with a little bit of risk, right? A little bit of uncertainty, a little bit of generosity, and maybe lavish giving of our own because we're so rich in heaven forever. We have a certain inheritance through adoption. But as great as this inheritance is, uh, this is just where the gifts of adoption start, okay? After all, it's one thing to have the legal status of a child. It's a whole other thing to experience what it's like to be a child, okay? A father's delight and love and care and intimacy are different than even the great gifts a rich dad can give you, right? So this is the difference between getting a sweet Lego set from your parents for Christmas, the difference between that and then your dad actually putting away his cell phone for a little while and sitting on the floor and putting the Legos together with you, right? We have the gifts of adoption legally and by right, but more than that, we have a greater intimacy with God because of our adopted status. What does this greater intimacy feel like? What's what's the experience of being the child of God? Well, one thing it feels like is access, okay? Unlimited, unrestrained access to the most powerful and wise and loving being in the universe. Now, no analogy would be perfect here. I mean, how could it be, right? We're talking about God. But it would be something sort of like this, okay? Okay. It's something like the experience of wandering into the bedroom of the President of the United States at 3 a.m. and poking him in the ribs just to ask for a glass of water, okay? Who can do that? You can't do that, right? There there are many powerful, influential, rich people in the world that cannot do that. Fortune 500 CEOs, 
They cannot do that. Queen of England, she cannot do that, okay? Sean White, Beyonce, Tom Jones himself cannot walk into the bedroom of the president, poke him in the ribs, and ask for a glass of water. You know who can do that? The president's kids can do that, and no one else. You and I would get shot long before we got to the president's bedroom by the Secret Service, but the president's kids can wander in any time they want because they have access to that kind of power simply by the fact that they, of their status, of, of, their, of their intimate connection and relationship to that man. And, and that is, I mean, that's a shadow of the access that we have to God, right? That, that is a, that's a small echo of the power and the influence that God has and the access that his children have been given. Listen to Psalm 116, verse 2. It says, God inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. I mean, what a great image, right? God in heaven inclining his ear to the voice of his children. It's sort of like a parent who can, if there's a room of 30, you know, you're, you're preschool, there's a room of 30 kids, and your child's voice cries out, you pick it up. I don't know how it happens. It's like DNA hardwired into your you know, auditory system. But if your child screams, you can pick it up out of a cacophony of other voices. And God is saying he inclines his ear to the voice of his kids, to you and to me, as we put our faith and trust in Jesus. God has an ear for you. He takes great delight in hearing the needs and the gratefulness, and even the ramblings of his kids, okay? Our prayer life does not have to be organized. It doesn't have to be super systematic. It does not have to be high and lofty. I mean, imagine like a three-year-old rambling to their parents. Parents love it, right? They just, the communication, and that's the image we get here of God inclining his ear to his people. It's actually his joy to do this. It's his, it's his pleasure to do this. This is what salvation is for. God set out to save the world so that he could bring children and extend his family and grow that loving relationship that he had in the Trinity from all time, extend it to more and more people. Salvation is for extending the family of God. Adoption is greater intimacy, um, and it is a, a greater inheritance. Finally, it's a whole new identity, all right? The concept of sonship throughout the Bible uh, isn't mainly about who your parents are. It's not like a genetic category in the Bible. It has way more to do with character. Sonship in the Bible has way more to do with kind of the people we are, who we are, our identity. And this actually makes sense given the time the Bible was written because basically um, things worked on an apprenticeship kind of model, right? So... Um, if your dad was a carpenter, you would probably become a carpenter. If your dad was a baker, you'd probably become a baker. So saying you're the son of a carpenter says way more about who your dad is and even way more about what kind of job you, you have. It has to do with your whole relationship to the community. It has to do with the sort of role you played in society. So being a son of someone has to do with your character. It has to do with who you are. It's a holistic identity. And so you have these phrases throughout the Bible. So in Galatians 3, uh, Paul refers to the sons of Abraham. Now, these aren't just the folks that come from a Jewish descent, but these are actually all of those who put their faith and hope in Jesus for salvation, right? It's a, it, it's a character um, description. You display the kind of faith Abraham displayed if you're a son of Abraham. 
On the flip side, um, if you're a son of the devil, which it mentions in Acts 13, it doesn't mean you have particularly difficult daddy issues, okay? What it does mean is that your character is opposed to the things of God, like the devil is opposed to the, king, the kingdom of God. You don't love what God loves. What does this mean for us? The gospel gift of adoption into God's family doesn't only imply a new status and rights. It doesn't even uh, imply new depths of relationship available with God. Adoption is a promise of a transformed identity. It's a vision of what kind of person you will become one day. Any This American Life fans in the room? Okay, they're an NPR radio show. Awesome. What they do is they basically tell a series of stories around a certain theme. All right? So one week, the theme was unconditional love. And this was the story from Act One of that radio program. It's a story of a boy named Daniel who was adopted from Romania by Heidi and Rick Solomon, who lived in Ohio. All right? Now, in Romania, Daniel slept sitting up until he was seven years old because he shared a crib with another child and they didn't have room to both lay down in the crib. Um, he, uh, he only left the crib to eat and go to the bathroom. He didn't know any of his caretakers well enough to know their names. Uh, he literally didn't know how to love or to be loved. Like those muscles that are required to learn how to love and be loved, he never, they were never practiced, they were never exercised. He, um, they were never developed. So after bringing him home at the age of seven, Heidi and Rick were getting ready to celebrate his eighth birthday in March, okay? And offhand, he kind of said, well, they don't, they don't have the month of March in Romania because I've never celebrated my birthday before. And uh, so all this birthday stuff got him thinking, well, gosh, I'm a, if I'm having a birthday, I was probably born, okay? Getting really philosophical. If I was born, I, I probably had parents. Where have my parents been for seven years? Okay, and uh, in that moment, he developed this deep and profound hatred towards parents, any parents. Doesn't matter who they were, just parents, right? How could they have done that to me? And um, so he linked all that confusion and distrust to the only parents he knew, who were Rick and Heidi uh, Solomon from Ohio. And his reaction, his anger, burned hot. I mean, in the coming months and years, he put a thousand holes in his bedroom wall, okay? When Rick would leave for work, uh, Heidi had to hire a babysitter who was essentially a bodyguard to just be at the home with her so her son wouldn't violently attack her. And even then, they had to call the police multiple times a month to, because of his violent behavior, all right? Daniel didn't know how to be a son. He didn't know how to be a son. He'd never been a son before. He only knew how to hate his parents. And so there's this moment in the interview, and I'd encourage you to listen to it. It's, a, it's powerful. When the interviewer asked Heidi, how do you continue to love someone who wants to kill you? How's that for a question? Huh? Parents, how would you answer that? She pauses. She kind of doesn't know what to say. And then she says, it's because he's my son. I mean, you have to love him or there's no way out of it. If you're lost, you have to keep moving forward to get to the end place. See, Heidi refused to abandon Daniel, her son, in a place of hate. Daniel was diagnosed with attachment disorder, which means he wasn't bonding with his parents. 
Now, I'm no professional, but I think I could have diagnosed that one. As punishment, they got creative, all right? This is kind of cool. Instead of timeouts, which is exactly what Daniel wanted, he wanted time away from his parents, they started instituting time-ins, okay? So when Daniel would get in trouble, he would have to sit on the couch with his mom or dad and get hugged for five minutes or ten minutes, depending on the severity of what he did. Heidi would literally hug him on the couch, and he would have to sit in a time-in with mom, because that's where he wanted to be the least. And over weeks and months, you know what happened in these time-ins? He began to hate her less. And it just dawned on him one day, gosh, my mom might love me. And then it hit him the next day, I might love my mom. And so as a regular practice in their home, even years later, when he's 13, 14 years old, he's taller now than his own mom is, they schedule regular nightly time-ins when they sit on the couch and they hold their son and they look him in the eye and they give him ice cream and they say, I love you. And over time, you know what happens? In these moments of time-ins, he's able for the very first time to express, in, you know, express any emotion whatsoever to talk through his time in the orphanage in Romania, to actually receive love and to give love to his parents. It's the first time he learned how to love, first time he learned how to be a son. Daniel was not just adopted into a new family, right? Daniel wasn't just given a legal status and an inheritance. Um, Daniel was transformed by the love that characterized his new family. He was literally changed, Daniel became their son the day he was adopted, but he grew into his sonship, the love and the generosity that characterized his new family over many years. How do you love someone who wants to kill you? If you um, are a Christian, or if you believe the Christian story has any legitimacy, you actually have to take that one step further, don't you? Uh, We have to ask God, how do you love someone who not only wanted to kill you, but then went ahead and killed you. Uh, I mean, the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ, sent down on our behalf, was crucified by us, but he was crucified for us and by us. How does God answer that question as a dad? He says, I intend to make you my sons and daughters. I've set my affection on you, and I will not leave you in a place where you hate me. I will not leave you outside of my family. I cannot leave my children spiritually lost. I cannot leave them partway changed or partway saved. I will transform them completely. They'll be made entirely new, holy as I am holy, and I would die to see that happen. That's how God answers that question. How do you love someone who wants to kill you? Well, we kill them. And then because of that, we have access to be adopted into his family. Those who trust in Jesus are in the family, but man, we are still being made family-like, aren't we? Uh, We are still waiting eagerly with some groaning, some difficulties, some setbacks, and many, many time-ins with God. I mean, think how frustrating it is to all end some of the places that he has you. You know why he's doing that? He's doing it on purpose. He's doing it so that he can turn his legal sons and daughters into sons and daughters that are characterized by the love and the grace of his family. Jesus Jesus intends to make us like himself, for us to embody the holy character of the family of God. 
You've not only received the family name, you will come to embody it. Adoption is an inheritance, it's an intimacy, it's an identity. It is a promise of who God is making his people to become. And he is at work in your life now, doing that. Do you see it? Do you have eyes to see, hearts to see, faith to see the ways that God is actively at work in your life and those around you? We can't do better than to close with words from 1 John. This is 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for coming to this world to live and die and be raised again on our behalf so that we can receive the gift of adoption. I pray that everything that that gift means, everything, all the lavish gifts that you've poured out on your people, that you've poured out on this world, Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes to its beauty and its glory. I pray that we would see how good you've been to us and that it would grow our hearts in affection for you. It would grow our hearts in trust for you. Jesus, give us eyes to see the ways that you are at work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.